This is the Radio Bible Class, and I'm your host, Tim Carter. We welcome you to our Bible study as the Radio Bible Class streams across the nation and around the world. We bring to a message how Christ ministers to his disciples after the resurrection. We greet you on the internet and radio with a message that Jesus is alive today. Now, today's lesson is titled, Making of a King, and it comes from 1 Samuel 11, 1 through 15. But before we start our lesson today, Word Talk Inc. could use your support. Now, playing music on the radio may sound simple, but actually it's quite costly due to publishing rights and royalties. And before that first song is ever played, there's utility bills and tower rental fees and maintenance and so forth. We need people just like you to help with a tax-deductible gift. So won't you do that today? You can do that by calling us at 601-483-8648. And there they can take your information safely and securely over the phone or balance your gift to Word Talk, Inc., P.O. Box 4334, Meridian, Mississippi, 39304. Now, your gift to Word Talk, Inc. is IRS approved as a 501c3 tax-exempt ministry. Now, your contribution is never used for salaries or managerial purposes, but 100% of it goes to the expense of providing the good news of Jesus Christ to our listening area. Hebrews 13, 16 says, Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. If you'd like to go back and listen to a previous lesson, you can do that by going to our podcast website. That's Radio Bible Class with no spaces between radiobibleclass.podbean.com or listen to us on iTunes. You can do that by going to the podcast section and searching for WMER Radio Bible Class with no space between Radio Bible Class. Today we pick back up about Saul and how he has become king. If you remember last week, we saw where he was anointed king and he was presented as king before the people of Israel. And at the very end of that, in chapter 10, verse 27, we saw that some people didn't see him and said, what kind of men are this that can save us? If you go back the last couple of weeks and look at chapter 8, 9, and 10, you might go with me and say that this is about the rise of Saul and also the fall of Saul. In those early chapters, we saw how the nation of Israel asked for a king. Now, that's not what God wanted, and it really upset Samuel, but Samuel went ahead and gave them what they wanted. He went to the Lord, he asked, and the Lord said, hey, they're not rejecting you, Samuel. They're rejecting me. I am their king. But he went to him and told him that the Lord has agreed to give you a king. But he told me to warn you about the consequences of having a king. And he went through all that. And that was the lesson we talked about, be careful what you ask for. And then we saw this young man named Saul that was going to be king. He came from a well-off family and he was a very tall man. He was taller than most folks. They only came up to his shoulders, what the Bible says. And he's out looking for donkeys. And then we see how God anointed him and called him into service and how to be the king that he wants the people to have. And he gives Saul the opportunity to be the king that the people need. And then last week, we did see how God used him and brought him through the anointing, how he changed him, how he changed him on the inside and the outside and how he does that with us. And then we looked at God's timing and we looked at his order for the choice how when he was brought into power that they brought in the nation of Israel and they went by tribe and then they went by clan and then they went by family and then eventually went down to Saul. If you missed the last several weeks, I would ask you to go back and listen to those lessons. I think that there's some really good nuggets to get out of that and there's a lot more depth than the skimming the top of the waves as we've gone through what we've covered the last several weeks. I have a lot to cover today, and today we're going to talk about the making of a king. 
So Saul became king. That's what we talked about last week. But this week, we're going to see how God uses him to make him into the king. And we're going to look at Saul's victory, and we're going to look how he gets established as king. So if you would, turn with me in your Bibles, 1 Samuel chapter 11. We'll start in verse 1. We'll read the first couple of verses, and then I'm going to flip over to the New Living Translation, because right there in chapter 10, verse 27, in the New Living Translation, there is kind of a hidden verse that is in that translation that's not in some of the other translations. So again, 1 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1, I'll be reading out of the ESV. Then Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh Gilead. And the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, On this one condition I will make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all your right eye and thus bring disgrace on all of Israel. And now I'm going to switch over to the New Living Translation. I'm going to read the last verse in chapter 10, I want to read what is called a hidden verse. It's not in a lot of the translations. But there were some scoundrels who complained, how can this man save us? And they scorned him and they refused to bring him gifts. But Saul ignored them. And then you'll see the rest of this hidden verse that's in parentheses. We'll talk about this in a minute. Nahash, king of the Ammonites, had been grievously oppressing the people of Gad and Reuben, who lived east of the Jordan River. He gouged out the right eye of each of the Israelites living there, and he didn't allow anyone to come and rescue them. In fact, of all the Israelites east of the Jordan, there wasn't a single one whose right eye Nahash had not gouged out. But there were 7,000 men who had escaped from the Ammonites, and they had settled in Jabesh-Gilead. Now, if you're not reading from the NLT Bible or the New Living Translation Bible, you'll notice that this verse is probably missing. It's not in the King James. It's not in the ESV. You know, so it's probably missing from the version you're reading from. But it is in the NLT Bible, and it has a parenthesis around it. Now, this information was found in a manuscript which predated the manuscript of the King James Bible, which was translated into English from you know, the different scrolls that, and letters that they had. Now, I really want you to understand this. Now, if your Bible has this or if it doesn't have it, it really doesn't matter because it doesn't change God's Word. It doesn't affect the events and the outcome. But I read it to you because I think it gives us a bit more background of what's going on right here as we go into chapter 11. The Ammonites were the descendants of Lot and his wicked daughters. Now, if you're an Old Testament history buff, you'll remember that when you study Genesis, Lot's daughters, after God's wrath was poured out on Sodom and Gomorrah, they got their father drunk, and while he was passed out, they had sex with him, and they became pregnant. And their sons were Benami, the father of the Ammonites, and Moab, the father of the Moabites. And their descendants became mortal enemies with the Israelites. And they had begun warring with the Israelites for years and years. And so we read here that there is a current king, and his name is Nahash, which means the hiss of a snake. Now, he was an extremely wicked and brutal king. He had attacked the tribes of Israel and had remained on the east side of the Jordan River. And that's where the Gad and Reuben tribes were. They were on the east side of the Jordan River, and the rest of the Israelites moved into the Promised Land. 
And what this verse shows us in verse 27 of the New Living Translation is that he was an evil king and he made them slaves. And to make it worse, he gouged out their right eye of every person that was there. But we also see from the New Living Translation that 7,000 had escaped and they went to Jabesh Gilead. And so now Nahash has taken his war there. He wants to conquer them as well. And that's what brings us into chapter 11. And that's what we saw in verse 1 is that King Nahash the Ammonite led his army against the Israelites in the town of Jabesh Gilead. So what we have is the Ammonites, they are encamped around Jabesh Gilead. They've surrounded the Israelite city, and they're saying, surrender to us, or other, we're going to kill you. Well, the men of Jabesh Gilead felt like their only hope was to make a covenant with him. Either they surrender to Nahash and serve him, or they are going to be killed, and then they're going to be plundered. And so Nahash, this evil king, makes an agreement. He says, okay. I'll make a covenant with you, but you have to agree to let me poke your right eye out. See, I think there's several reasons why Nahash is asking for this. One is to bring shame on him, and it says that right here in the Bible. The second is, though, he wants his revenge. He wants the revenge of the 7,000 men that got away, that made him look bad. He's this evil king that was made to look weak or bad because 7,000 men got away, so he wants his revenge. Hopefully you see how evil this man was. He has these Jews, these Israelites, in a tight spot, and he's playing the evil game of let's make a deal. And his deal is one that is not fair at all. It's I will stop the siege if you'll let me gouge out the eye of each man in the city. I'm getting older in my age, and it's getting harder and harder for me to see with two eyes. I can't imagine only having one eye and for sure not having my right eye. And I did some research on why the right eye. You might be asking, Tim, why did he want to poke out the right eye? Well, when you look at how they went to battle in those days, it was primarily it was hand-to-hand -hand combat. Men would hold a sword in their right hand because most were right-handed and a shield in their left hand, and they would go into battle. They would lift their shield to protect themselves. And they would look over that shield with the right side of their face and their right eye. So by removing the right eye, Nahash was removing the ability to defend themselves. Effectively, they could never revolt against him. After he did this and he took away their ability to launch an effective attack, he was taking the fight out of them. On the spiritual level, though, the right eye and the right hand have a place of honor. That is the position of God. Nahash was taking their defense, their ability to fight, their loyalty to God, all in one swipe. He was doing that by taking away their right eye. Well, look how they respond in verse 3. The elders of Jabez said to him, Give us seven days respite that we may send messengers through all the territory of Israel. And then if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. So what do we see here? We see that Nahash wants his revenge. He's playing let's make a deal that's not fair at all. And the request comes back from the people, just give us a little time to see if somebody will save us. And surprisingly, King Nahash agrees to their proposal. And you know what? He's arrogant enough that he's going to allow that. Either he doesn't expect anybody to help, or he believes he can win against the rest of Israel if they do come to help. 
Either way, his arrogance will be his undoing. So how does that apply to us? How does this really apply to us? Well, let me tell you, first of all, everyone needs help. We all have problems. We all need help. When you walk around in the world, when you walk even into the church on a Sunday morning, you may think that you're the only one there with a problem. But that's not true. Everyone has problems. And the church is a hospital for those that have problems. But everyone has problems. If you read Job 5, 7, it says, Man is born to trouble as surely as sparks fly upward. Even Jesus said in John 16, 33, In this world you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Everybody has trouble. And as Christians, we are engaged in spiritual warfare. We don't have just physical trouble. We have spiritual trouble. Satan hates Christians, and the world hates Christians as well. Jesus also said in John 15, If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. But if you don't belong to the world, the world will choose to hate you. And that's why the world hates you, because you make a stand against the ways of Satan. And so this attack on Israel is just like an attack on us. It's just like an attack on the people of God. It's a spiritual battle that they are having to fight. They need some physical saving, but it's also a spiritual battle. But God has a way to save them. And let's look at that. When the word gets down to Jabesh Gilead, the people cry out. And then look what happens in verse 5. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen, and Saul said, What is wrong with the people that they are weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul, and he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. So here's the new king of Israel. He's still not sure what he's supposed to do because he's out behind the plow, plowing a field behind oxes. But let's don't worry too much about that because God will guide him just like God will guide you when you commit to serve him. But when he comes in and he finds everyone weeping, he immediately throws himself in the mix. And he asks, what's wrong? And he shows some concern. He shows uh, compassion. He's willing to get involved. Leaders are willing to get involved. They don't stand on the sideline. They get involved when their people are hurting. And just like we established a minute ago, everyone has problems, everyone's hurting. And so as leaders, then we should be getting involved in helping people through their problems. I think about Paul in Philippians 1, uh, verses 23 and 24, where he tells them that, I desire to depart to be with Christ, which is better by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in body. See, Paul wasn't afraid of dying, but he says... God needs me here more than he needs me in heaven. And so I'm going to stay here a little longer and I'm going to help guide you. And then I want you to notice in verse 6 that I read that the Holy Spirit comes upon him. As Christians, we have to walk in the Spirit. If we want to help people, if we want to recognize the people that need help, then we need to follow the Holy Spirit and he will lead us to those that we need to help. Last week we ended with Troublemaker saying, how can this man save us? And now we learn the answer that Saul can save them, but he's only doing it through the power of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit comes upon Paul and he has the power. He has the, the right idea. He becomes like a king. He is going to be what the judges used to be in the book of Judges. Saul is empowered by the Holy Spirit to deliver Israel from the Ammonites. 
And as leaders, if we're going to solve people's problem like Saul does, then we have to follow the Holy Spirit. And we'll get involved. He'll take us where we need to. You know, Zechariah 4, 6 says, Not by might, not by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord Almighty. When we try to do God's work in our own strength, we don't find the right people that we need to be helping. We do it by what we see. We think differently than God sees. You know what else? We burn out quickly and we fail. When we rely on the Holy Spirit, though, and we do it through His power and through His leading, then we are more effective to do God's work and the work He needs right then and there. So we've seen the request for time. We see that Saul learns of their dilemma. And now let's look how Saul gathers an army and he goes and defeats Nahash. Look at verses 7 through 11 with me. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them into pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messenger, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. And then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. And when he mustered them at Bezek, the, the people of Israel were 300,000, and the men of Judah 30,000. And they said to the messenger who had come, Thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow by this time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. And when the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. Therefore the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will give ourselves to you, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. And the next day Saul put his people into three companies, and they came in the midst of the camp in the morning and watched and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered, so that no two of them were left together. So Saul starts acting like a king right here, and he rallies the people to action. He had to act fast. Jabesh Gilead was 42 miles away, which means it would take a couple of days for the messenger to get there. And it would take a couple of days to get back. And there was only a week. Remember, they said, give us seven days respite. So Saul cuts up a pair of oxen and he sends it throughout Israel saying that you are going to come and be a part of Samuel and Saul. And he calls them into action. Otherwise, we're going to do this to your oxen. Now, we'll see later on that Samuel and Saul have a parting of ways. But here we see Saul brings and includes Samuel into his call for action. But also look at the work of the Holy Spirit again. The fear of the Lord fell on the people and they came out to fight. Saul suddenly now has an army of 330,000 strong. He gathers his troops together and he gives them the idea that we're going to stage it in three different ways. After we've studied about Saul over the last several weeks, it had to be the Spirit of God and His power that he was working in. Do you think Saul was the one that would have made the bold statement that he did out of his own power? I don't think so. See, when God is with you, you don't need to be afraid. And Saul is definitely not afraid of this army. He's not gone to battle yet. He has no idea how many men are going to come fight. Yet he is ready to go take care of the men that are in need. He's the king. He's going to do it. And God's power and spirit has come upon him. And there is no fear in him. And when we have God inside of us, we understand that the Holy Spirit is leading us and we're working in his power. Guess what? We shouldn't have fear. You might be going, well, Tim, you don't know what God's asked me to do. Did he ask you to go fight for someone's life? That's what Saul's doing right here. And yet he follows what the Holy Spirit says. So whatever God's telling you to do, go do it. Do it in His strength. Do it in the Holy Spirit. Work in His power and God will not fail you. 
I want you to understand when God is with you, you don't need to be afraid. Remember what God said to Joshua? Yeah, in Joshua 1.9, he says, Be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Paul told young Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.7, But God did not give us a spirit of fear, but he gave us a spirit of power and of love and of self-discipline. As leaders, we're not to be afraid. We are to rise to the task that God calls us to. We are to go out in faith. We are to step out in faith. Trust firmly in the Lord and choose faith. And I promise you that God will equip the action that you need. And then look at what the men of Jabesh did. When they heard of their deliverance and that the nation of Israel is coming to battle with them, they were encouraged. They began to spread some disinformation to the Amorites. They told them, well, we'll surrender to you tomorrow and then you can do whatever you want to with us. You know, that word surrender there in verse 10 is a word that simply means we will go out to you. So their ambiguity to that statement that they gave them was that, hey, we know we're about to go to battle with you guys, but we're not going to tell you that. We're just going to tell you we're going to come out tomorrow and you can do what you want to us. Now, the Amorites thought that they meant, well, we'll go out and surrender. But what Jabesh really knew is that we'll march out and we'll battle you to victory. People that are out doing God's work understand that God's word and God's promises always follow through. Again, when Joshua was ready to die, what did he tell the people? He told them in Joshua 23, Now I'm about to go the way of the earth. You know with all your heart and soul that not one of all the good promises the Lord your God has given you has failed. Every promise he has fulfilled, not one has failed. Again, the Apostle Paul says in Romans 15, 4, that everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, for us to learn from, so that through endurance and through encouragement of the Scripture, we may have hope. So today, whatever God's called you to do, whoever God's telling you to go help, go out and do it and go in faith knowing that God will not let you fail. And then in verse 11, we see the victory that Saul has. You know, Saul didn't just rely blindly on God's promise. But he did do that, but he did his part too. He used strategy. You know, he organized the men. He divided them into three groups and had them attack the Ammonites from three different directions simultaneously so that they would not be ready. He did that in the early morning. They did it in the last watch of the night is what the Bible says. So that'd probably be like 3 to 6 a.m. He led that surprise attack before dawn, which resulted in he crushed that enemy. He crushed the Ammonites. What I want you to understand from this is that we have to walk in faith and we have to be led by the Holy Spirit. But God gave us a brain, too. God gave us a brain to use to think clearly. And part of that of being a great leader and doing what God wants us to do is that we have to do that through blood, sweat and tears. There's hard work. There's planning. There's things that have to be done to be effective for what God's called you to do. We need to make sure that we are understanding that we're following God's call, what he wants us to do, but then we also plan and we attack just like Saul did. And look what happens. Through this victory, through the defeat of Nahash, Saul is established as king. Now remember in verse 27, I told you about those guys that scoffed. How can this man save us? Saul now has the chance to take them and have them killed. But watch what he does. He shows mercy. And because of that, Saul is accepted as king. Let's look at verse 12 through 15. Then the people said to Samuel, 
Who is it that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring them in, that we may put them to death. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death through this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal, and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. If you remember, Saul was quiet. Saul didn't say anything when he had these troublemakers say and question his authority. And now the people that did hear it are saying, hey, where are these? They should be punished. But Saul shows mercy. He says, this isn't a time to punish people. This is a time to celebrate. And look what Saul does. He says, let's give all the glory to God. You know, Saul has earned the people's respect. He did that by showing leadership in a time of crisis. Samuel then gets everybody to go to Gilgal and he reaffirms the kingship. And I want you to notice the phrase that's there, all the people. Saul had won over his critics with his fast action and his leadership. You notice the focus, though, is still on the Lord. They sacrifice a fellowship offering to the Lord. It's good to have fellowship and celebrate the success, but at all times we need to make sure it's not focused on us and it's focused on the Lord. So today, looking at chapter 11, we see the victory that Saul has. And we see how he takes down Nahash, this evil king. But how did he do it? He did it through the power of the Holy Spirit. He did it by listening to the Holy Spirit and going in his power, listening to what God came upon him. And then he also did it by planning and having strategy, using his brain. And what that did, that allowed him to become king. It was a making of the king. See, God heard the same thing those people said. How is this man going to save us? And here he establishes Saul as king. And we see that Saul is under the spirit because he's showing mercy and he's pointing everything back to God. He's giving all the glory to God, not to him as king. And everyone accepts him as king. Saul was used by God. And you know what? There was one even greater than him that was used by God. And that was Jesus Christ. Jesus cares about us and our problem. And when we're lost in our sin, he not only cares, but he did something about it. He took action. He died on the cross for our sins that we might be forgiven. And then he brings people together into our life. He brings the body of Christ together and he uses the Holy Spirit to go out and tell them to help those that need to hear about how, what he's done. And today, the Holy Spirit may be knocking on your heart, reminding you of things that God has called you to do, how to serve in the church, how to go out and help those in need. Maybe you're one of the ones that needs help. Reach out to a brother in Christ or a sister in Christ and ask them how God can help you. Let them tell you. What I want to challenge you is that God called all of us to be leaders. We are to go and make disciples. That doesn't mean we just go and tell. That means after they come into the body, we disciple them, we help them, and we help their needs and their problems. There's nothing greater in this world than to be used by God to serve others. So won't you do that today? Let us pray. Dearly Father, we come before you today, Lord. We thank you for this time together. Lord, we thank you for this chapter. We understand that there was a need and Saul is a king, yet he doesn't even understand what that really means because we see that he's out there just plowing in the field. But Lord, your spirit came over him and you moved him into action. He went out and helped. 
Lord, I thank you for this chapter because it teaches us how we can go help others because everyone is hurting. Your word tells us that. Today, I pray for the one that you've called for whatever reason they've not gone into serving like you've asked them to do. Lord, I pray today that they will just answer that. Lord, also the one that doesn't know you, the one that is hurting, that needs your help. Lord, if they're listening today, I pray today that today would be the day they would understand that you did come. Jesus, you came and you died on a cross. You took their sins. You knew everything that they were going to do, and it didn't scare you away. You still went to the cross. You nailed it to the cross. And today, Lord, I ask that they would believe on your finished work on the cross and how you overcame death and how you rose again. Lord, your word tells us we'll confess with our mouth and believe in our heart we will be saved. Lord, right now, I pray for those that they will do that. Lord, we thank you for all you do for this ministry. It's in your name we pray. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.